Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And we're here for the Invested Podcast where we're talking about how we're really breaking down how Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have met excuse me, have managed to do so well. And let's just start that over again. <laughs> okay. Okay, here we go. Take two. Three. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And we're here for the Invested Podcast. Welcome where we're talking about how to invest the way Warren Buffett <laughs> and Charlie Munger do it. I'm teaching my daughter. How to invest. How does one do such a thing? <laughs> it does sound like that. Like the twilight zone. So, and frankly, it takes a lot of information to find out how to do <laughs> such a thing as long-term Buffett style value investing. Which it turns out, is incredibly simple, but not easy. <laughs> this is like one of those um, movie trailers that's like, in a world far, far away. <laughs> I love it that it's incredibly simple and not easy, particularly right now. It is brutal. And yeah. um, and there's a reason for that. We're going to talk about that today because we're talking about Monash Prabhai's interview at Forbes magazine from yeah. June. And he gets right into that right away. And I'll tell you, there are times when investing the way I do it and the way I'm teaching Danielle and the way you guys are learning um, is tough to do because it's tough to be patient. Well, it's not tough to, I have to disagree. It's not tough to do. It's not tough to practice investing and study and read and learn about companies. It's actually, in my opinion, a really good time to do that. But what's tough to do is find companies at good prices. Yeah, there is the truth of it, right? There's the sticky part. And by way of looking historically, there are also times in my experience where it is literally like shooting fish in a barrel and <laughs> first you drain the water. I mean, it's just sometimes ridiculously easy, simple and easy. Right now, it's simple and not easy. Um, because as Danielle said, it's tough to find companies that are on sale that we understand and we like. And that is the subject we want to discuss today because Monesh Prabhai was talking about that in this Forbes article. Yeah, so this is, I think it might not be in the actual magazine, Dad. I think it might only be online, but I'm not sure. Oh, but you can okay. definitely find it online. It's an interview with Monish Pabrai, P-A-B-R-A-I. Um, and if you just search Forbes or Monish Pabrai, it should come up. And it is from June 25th, 2018. It's an interview with a guy called Kevin Harris. So that's the one. And um, and he just he just gave this really lovely, not very long, but very deep uh, interview about the way he invests, about what he's doing now, and really about how he approaches his own investing practice is, is how I took it. It's, yep. it's pretty cool. He, I mean, he, we'll get into it, but he talks a lot about um, doing it on his own yep. and, and not really being influenced or depending on anybody else. And, and that's something that I think I connected to that so much because that's what I'm doing now with this kind of investing style. Well, one of the things I thought that um, Kevin in his interview brought out from Monash was a question really to the point of, uh, you know, how does value investing change over time? 
right? Mm. What we're calling rule one style investing, which honestly I don't think is the same thing as value investing. I don't think Monash, I know I'm not, and I don't think Monash is a value investor per se, but we're going to use that term because that's the way the world's calling it, okay? Yeah, I mean, I know that you've, yeah, you've said that a lot and I've questioned you about it a lot because yeah. I think it, I think that the term has changed. I think it has become what Warren Buffett has made it. I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't think so, honey. I, I look at, at people who call themselves value investors and there are many, many, many of them. And I would say the vast majority of them aren't really much different than uh, your typical mutual fund manager. In fact, I bet you you could find well over four or 500 mutual funds that call themselves value funds. Hmm. Um, and I gotta look this up. They're not value. See what this looks like. They're, they're not value investors in the in the tradition of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and Monesh Babri and me. These guys mm -hmm. are. They call themselves value investors because what they're doing is they're going out and trying to find companies that have a low PE ratio, um, and they buy two or three hundred of them. So I guess in in all fairness, they could call themselves value investors in the tradition of Ben Graham, who bought two or three hundred companies at a time and kind of founded value investing. So I would say they're more in Graham's terms, value investors than Buffett and Munger. I, I don't think Buffett and Munger are really value investors per se. And I'll, I'll, I'll make that argument by saying that Charlie changed Warren's view of this back in the early 1960s by saying, look, it's better um, to buy a wonderful business at a fair price than a fair business at a wonderful price. And what value investors try to do is buy wonderful price businesses, right? They're just super cheap businesses. And then they'll buy 200 of them because they don't know which ones are gonna fail. Hmm. Whereas mm -hmm. Buffett and Munger buy six <laughs> businesses or eight, you know, and they because wanna make sure certain, they're good. Or they're very certain. <clears throat> They're very, what's, the, what's what's almost certain, but not quite. There should be a word for that. Warren says certain with no I know he does, but no I can't say conditions. that. I cannot say that. Well, the SEC certainly doesn't want to let you say that. That's for sure. But I, here's a quote from Buffett, basically, uh, more or less a quote that says, if you buy a wonderful business at a at a fair price, you are certain to make money. He said, it's no different than buying a $10 bill for $5. You're going to make money you're going to be able to turn it into that $10 at some point. And this is what Manesh is saying in this article, is that these companies that he's buying are so cheap relative to their value. Um, he makes the point that he's buying Fiat Chrysler back uh, six years ago, um, that they were projecting to be at $5 a share by 2018. Right. This is this is their projection was going to be at two, at at five dollars a share for earnings, and the stock was five dollars. So he said, if you can buy a company at one times earnings of the future earnings, you're doing pretty good. You know, you're probably going to be okay. And does that make sense to you? I'm I'm seeing you kind of roll no. your eyeballs here. I feel like maybe the <laughs> words got mixed up because I think what you were trying to say is that the company's earnings were five dollars a share. Right. What did I say? I don't know. I don't know what you actually said, but what I heard was that their stock price is $5 a share at the time and that they were projecting that their stock price would be $5 per share in 2018. Oh, 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 and then I misspoke. 
but I don't know if you did, but that's what I heard. So what you're saying is there's a difference between stock price and earnings per share, and their earnings per share was projected to be five dollars oh, in two thousand eighteen. It's projected to be five dollars right. in two thousand eighteen. Right. So Sergio Marconi, who's the, the CEO, was saying we're going to be at five dollars per share earnings in five years or four years or whatever it was. And um and what Monesh was saying is that if he could buy that stock for $5 per share, when four or five years from now, it was going to be selling, it was going to be selling for some price X and it would have some earnings of $5 a share. of the earnings per share. <clears throat> it was almost certainly going to have a multiple of more than one, right? And if it had a multiple of two, it would mean that Monesh would double his money in five years. Got it. A multiple got it, got of it, got two. But it's much more likely to have a multiple of 14 or 16, right? So can you imagine how well you would do if, in fact, it turned out to have a multiple of 14 or 16 five years later with $5 of earnings, you'd make a huge amount of money. And that's exactly what happened. Hmm. He made like 800% on that stock in five years. Um, yeah. And, he talks and he's that. so like chill about it. He's just like, we did well. I was pretty happy with that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That was a really good investment. I looked at that very, very closely because I knew he was in it. I didn't know he was in it until uh, Fiat Chrysler's stock price had doubled to $11 a share from where Monash bought it. And there's always this tendency to feel like you got too late, right? You found out the information way yeah. too late. Yeah. And, and now you hesitate to move in, even though a great investor is in there because he got in at so much of a better price. But honestly, I was looking at Fiat Chrysler at $11 a share before they split off uh, Ferrari. And effectively, what they've done is they've split off a company that uh, Monesh bought, I think, at, I don't know, five or six billion dollars of market value. Um, and they spun off Ferrari and got $20 billion of market value just for Ferrari. And then currently, the rest of the company is worth $20 billion. So it... it his point is you, you're, you're going to have an opportunity to buy great companies. And my point is you're going to have an opportunity to buy great companies for many, many years. And it's sometimes a mistake. It's often a mistake to assume just because it was really cheap five years ago, it's not cheap today. That would hmm. be the point. Hmm. That's a good point because there is a real feeling of I'm late. I feel that I would say with like every single company sure. that I look at. Because the only reason it even comes to my attention is that maybe it's like an interesting company that maybe could be like decently priced, but probably I found out about it because somebody else discovered it six months earlier and that's always late. Sure. And there's you're always going to feel one of two things when you see that some really good investor that you trust um, has bought this company at $5 and now it's 11, okay? You're gonna feel yeah. one of two things. If it's 11, you're gonna feel like I missed the boat. And if it's at four, you're gonna feel like maybe they're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? You're like, oh man, he he bought it at five and now it's at four, maybe he made a mistake. And that's no, a legitimate No, you're gonna feel fear. really good about yourself because you're gonna be like, oh yeah, I missed that one. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and it went down. Right? Yeah. And it went down. And that's why that's why you it, it's not possible um, realistically to just simply copy Monash Prabhai or copy Warren Buffett because these guys do make mistakes. They do have 
times when they buy something they think is on sale and it turns out it's got problems and it's, it goes into big trouble and and you don't know when they exit and they get out and then you're stuck with it. And meanwhile, you're just hoping it goes up and you don't really understand what you bought. And as a result, you end up in a big emotional quandary and, and that's a terrible place to be. If you've ever bought anything because somebody else bought it and you just jumped in with it and then it went down, that is a nightmare emotional Oh my God, horrible. The, yeah. pain. the pain. The pain. But this is what I mean when you say Warren Buffett says that you are have to be, you are certain and it's impossible to lose money. No, it's always possible <laughs> to lose money. There are circumstances beyond our control. I'm sorry to inform you about this, Dad. I don't well, care if you've gone through your checklist and you've done everything. Like we have to be aware and able to work through and live through moments where things go wrong that are through no fault of our own. And that happens with companies. Companies are run by people and people screw up and people make bad decisions and people steal and people don't predict terrorist attacks and people don't predict airline crashes and all kinds of things can happen. So which to makes me, it sound clearly, scary, doesn't clearly it? Clearly, this is very important to me because, because I, I have to be ready for that. Like this certain thing means that there will be a time when I don't know how to handle the fact that my certainty created a bad situation. Well, the first thing you're going to do to handle that is to have a strategy for investing similar to what uh, Monash was talking about in this article. And that is you're going to own more than one thing. Right. You're going to own more than one thing. Two, I'll, I'll answer my own point. Mm -hmm. I'll know that my certainty actually didn't create this situation, that I controlled everything I could control and knew I did everything I could do. And the other 1% of life is simply beyond me. And what I have to do then is come back to my investing practice and work through it emotionally, be comfortable with it, have the other companies as you just said and and continue on and be aware that this is probably part of what's going to happen we make mistakes yep and there will be a mistake i mean there's no question i don't know any investors who have not made a mistake including charlie and warren but in the long run if you follow this investing strategy that monash is talking about in this article you're going to do well it's going to come yeah. out well so the the first basic that he was talking about in here that was really fascinating was that, of course, he's looking for companies that are on sale and he owns no companies in the United States right now. Yes, we're no finally US getting to this. Companies, none. This is we ended last time. We're finally getting to it. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, he doesn't own any U.S. companies, which is a really surprising thing for a U.S. investor. Well, yes and no. I mean, if you if you think about it, um, Buffett is sitting there with a bunch of U.S. companies that he bought over many years, right? So he owns U.S. companies. But if you look at the companies he's been buying lately, he's bought really, to my knowledge, he's bought one, maybe two companies in the last two or three years that he's gotten seriously into. Uh, the hmm. one, the most important one that comes to mind is, of course, Apple Computer. Um, which he's bought very, very aggressively in the last six months uh, to a mm -hmm. point where he owns a huge chunk of Apple now. Um, and um, 
and so of course, you know, Buffett is Buffett has one or two, so there's some there. But in general, he's sitting in a pile of cash. And Pabrai is taking a different perspective. Instead of staying with US companies and not putting money into the market at all, which is what Buffett's doing, um, he has branched out overseas. And he's bought yeah. a bunch of different companies. He's talking about Fiat Chrysler that he bought um, <clears throat> six years ago, but which he continues to own and which he thinks is going to continue to go up substantially. And, but I, I have, and this is why you have to do your homework, hon, is because uh, the CEO of Fiat Chrysler just got very, very ill and mm-hmm. stepped down uh, just in the last week. And mm-hmm. And now you have to wonder, okay, well, this genius has been running this thing and turning it around since since Fiat bought Chrysler almost out of bankruptcy, and uh, will the will the next guys in line do as well? Right. Yeah. Well, and people have been wondering that for a while because he's been talking about retiring for right, a while. Right. So we're planning hasn't, next year to retire. But he hasn't. Yeah. But he, he hasn't named a successor. So it's uh, as by the time this podcast comes out, he may they may have named a successor. They did. Then. They did. Oh, yep, they did. Yep, the guy that was running Jeep and uh, and Ram. Oh, trucks. you're right. I read that and I forgot it. Yeah, yeah, totally. So a new guy is taking is over. There, is there like prize pig basically? <laughs> it it <laughs> is. <laughs> they love Jeep over there. <laughs> it is, and they're planning on uh, on really, really. I mean, basically, Chrysler has stopped making sedans almost completely now. Well, good because they're hideous. They were hideous, and and uh, Jeep. I'm not a huge fan of, but I am a huge fan of Ram trucks. I own uh, two of them, mm-hmm. and I love them compared to Fords. So I get it why why they're doing very well with that, and they're going to really expand the Jeep line. Maybe the Jeep line is better than I owned a Jeep back when you were a little baby, I and know. that was the biggest piece of crap car I've ever. I've always owned. heard about what a piece of crap car that was. <clears throat> oh it, it annoys you to this day. To this day, I, <laughs> I I shut the hood after I checked checked oil or something. I I put the hood down without slamming it or anything, and I bent it in half. <laughs> it buckled at the and, at the at the hinge. Oh my god! And these things get ingrained in you because my husband said that he wanted a Jeep, and my first because he's European and to him Jeeps are like cool and American. And I was just like, oh my god, we can't get a Jeep, <laughs> a crap car. And he goes, oh, you've done your research. And I was like, no, no, it's just what my I dad actually, said. From I actually, have no idea if it's a 30, good car or not. It <laughs> thirty years ago, it wasn't thirty a good years car. ago. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we still don't have one though. So, um, yeah, so it's really interesting that Munish Pabrai has taken himself completely out of the U S is looking in other markets where he can really find mispricing. And he uses that word mispricing, which is what he did with Fiat Chrysler. He found that right. mispricing that you were talking about between the earnings per share and the price of the stock. Right. And, um, and he's just not finding that in the U.S. right now. But I got to say, you know, Monash is Indian and 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 so like an expat has already a worldview, right? Because he's living in America. Yeah. He's from India. It's a lot easier for a guy like that to feel comfortable looking into Indian companies than it would be for me. And I've I've lived in India for little chunks of time in the past. So I feel very comfortable in India and I love India. But I'm a little bit intimidated by the um, the ability of Indian companies to to get around the accounting 
uh, rules of American accounting. And I, Monesh makes this point in this article that he has to know which are the auditor companies which are trustworthy and which are not. Oh, that's And so he knows that. And he's got yeah. a list of companies that he's added to his checklist, a, a list of auditing companies. And if he sees a company that they're auditing, that's an immediate red flag because they have been involved in scams in the past where fraudulent companies were audited by them and said to be good. Yeah, that's interesting. You got to yeah. know what you're about. You got to know what you're about. And that is where Warren and Monash would part company is that Absolutely. Warren and Charlie don't feel particularly comfortable investing in a significant number of companies overseas. And they have done it. Uh, Warren bought uh, the Chinese petroleum company for a short period of time. He just thought it was a really mispriced deal and he owned it for like two years and got out. Um, they've bought this BYD uh, uh, battery company that they think is run by this genius in China. Um, and um, he's owned uh, a steel company in Korea, which turned out to be a mistake and hmm. they got out of that. Um, but in, in general, I got to say, Warren just stays in America. He, he walks his talk, right? And his talk is he, stick yeah, with America. Yeah, I think he's a real homebody guy in every way. Yep. He stays where he grew up and he invests where he grows up, where he grew up. We invest where he knows. And But this is the difference between Warren and Charlie and Monesh. Okay, so we're talking right. to guys that are in the same investing strategy. I mean, Monash learned his strategy from Buffett and and Munger, but Muff, Buffett and Munger don't have to answer to investors at all. They don't care what the investors have to say much at all and are willing to sit in cash for years. You know, maybe they'll give some money back as a dividend that they've never done before. But basically, they're not listening to investors moan about not having a good return. They're not okay. running a fund. Okay. Right. Um, right. Whereas, whereas Manesh is running a fund and to some degree has to stay invested or these big money people are going to pull their money out. So he's under oh, a certain amount of pressure. Oh, to, I see what you're saying. <clears throat> so you're, you're trying to say that, <clears throat> that Buffett and Munger can, can sit around and, and do nothing, not, not purchase anything new. Right. Whereas for the American maybe, market to turn. Maybe Pabrai got, in a sense, pushed out to these other countries that he wouldn't have otherwise, maybe, I don't know, maybe have gone to. Maybe. I'm not 100% positive, but you remember our interview with Guy Spear where Guy said he just tries to stay invested, right? Yeah. And yeah. this is a very different strategy than Buffett and Munger. And this is a strategy being driven by what I would call the institutional imperative, which is... Yeah, but I don't that you're characterizing it that way because he's saying that he's finding very interesting companies in markets that have been flatlining for a long time and that there's a real mispricing that that he's finding there is so, but he's dealing with a level and he says he's not a macro investor and this is really important that um, if he's not a macro investor then essentially he's ignoring the macroeconomic environment of india and that's dangerous i mean if you're going to ignore the macro and investment situation environment of India, you're ignoring some really major issues with the Indian market. Hold on. Okay. 
You tell me all the time to ignore the macro situation and that I should just find companies. And if I can find them at a good price that's on sale and they're wonderful companies and they meet all the criteria, then it doesn't matter what's happening in the macro market because I will have already bought it at a great price. And if it goes down, then awesome, I can buy some more. Yes, and we're talking about America. Predominantly talking about America. And America has a very resilient economic engine. We're, we're a strongly capitalist nation with very, very good structure and rules, uh, very good, honest regulation, honest accounting by the most part. And you can count on the American dream to continue, that the country will continue to grow. We're the biggest economic engine in the world, and we will continue to grow. So if you're buying into a company in America, you're basically buying into the overall American macroeconomic situation. When you buy a company in India, you're buying into the Indian macro situation. I got you. You see I what I'm you. saying? That's a, that's a, it's a very fair point. That's a very, I'm glad that you <laughs> And I would tell you, up. I've got a very good friend of mine who you, guys, who you know, but I won't mention his name, who shifted his investments out of America into India and got smoked. And he's a good value investor, and he bought companies that he thought were on sale, and he ended up getting crunched by a change in the in the value of the currency against the dollar, in mm. in dealing with really onerous Indian regulation, um, and and culture that's there that is uh, bureaucratic to the max, and inhibits the growth of companies that should grow. And as a result, you can buy in there and you get these super good looking deals and they just stay good looking deals. They never get up. And hmm. I'm not saying that's going to happen to Monash. He's obviously a much, much more informed investor about India than my friend was. Um, but <laughs> I'm not in that informed about India. And I, I would say by and large, most people listening to the podcast would be very, very well served to be to be investing in a culture and economic environment that they really understand. He also it's a great point. I'm really glad that you made it in the sense that. So how can we put this right? It's not. We're not investing based on the macroeconomic situation. That's what you've been teaching me. I think that's right. But we are conscious of into what market we are buying literally yep. Yep. into what market yep. what is this stock exchange right. that we're buying into right. what kinds of standards do they uphold can we trust the information coming out of it and do they change them regularly or is it reliable like all those kinds of really legal questions that i think are fascinating that is it is fascinating and monash is making an expanded argument um maybe a little bit to support his idea of moving outside the U.S. by saying in this article that the number of public stocks have shrunk radically um, over the last number of years. Uh, in the down, U.S. In the U.S., down yeah. by about 50%. Yeah, it's something we've made that point on, on the podcast before. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. There's so many fewer public companies yeah. in yeah. the U.S. Yep. And this is, of course, the, the result of... Um, of the larger environment that these companies yeah. are being formed in 
And um, a couple of things that have changed over time. One is that the pool of capital now for private companies, private equity capital and venture capital, and uh, 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 this giant capital pool. For private that, companies. Yeah, means that they mm -hmm. can get access to growth capital yeah. without giving up a huge chunk of the company and maybe on the same terms that they could get by going public and they don't have to deal with the public regulations and the oversight mm -hmm. and the and the disclosures you have to make and telling everybody about your business all day long which is a and actually an enormous and you don't have to do quarterly earnings projections right you don't, you don't have to do all of that short-term stuff maybe you do for your private investors but it's a different kinds of thing um, you don't have to focus on that short-term stuff, which so many companies find a waste of time. Oh, and then your CEO and your chief financial officer have to sign on the dotted line that everything in the accounting report is exactly right. And often that's difficult for these guys to do, you know, to know that deep, the details. Mm -hmm. And when they sign that, they could go to jail if they're wrong. And mm -hmm. so all of this creates a kind of an onerous environment um, that... Uh, this, it's really a combination. I mean, companies would still go public like crazy in spite of regulations, and they always have if they need the capital. But what has really encouraged companies not to go is suddenly we have an enormous billions and billions of dollars available for companies to stay private. And that's quite that's quite different than it used to be. Yeah, and, it's a really interesting point. Yep. And I want to ask you what I was about to get to before we, we got off on that, which is Monish Pabrai says that he also is investing on, in South Korea and Japan, which are very different macro situations than India. They're both highly developed countries, highly developed economies, extremely Western friendly. Yep. I, I really... How would you think about those compared to the U.S.? I would imagine they'd be in a sort of different category for you than than India would. Yeah, it is. They are a different category. They're not, you know, uh, sort of oppressed by bureaucracy and and culture um, that fights against entrepreneurship. Um, these are both very entrepreneurial type countries, and both have been crushed um, for various reasons in terms of their yeah. stock market. Which is why he was looking at them because they've been crushed for a yep. long time yep. and he thinks they still have good companies in there. Yep, and he's probably right. I mean, if you could figure out how to go into Japan and buy public companies at a decent price, um, you, you could probably do very well. The question is whether you're gonna be able to really know what's going on. I mean, can yeah. you really know what's going on in a company that's producing everything in Japanese and nothing in English? And, you know, how do you know well, what the heck you're looking at? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> unless you're fluent in Japanese, that's going to be a tall order. Exactly. Yeah. So the I'm, point I'm being kind that, of assuming they produce some documents in English. but Well, some companies do, but they don't have to. No, right? no, of course. If they're they really local to. company. They don't have to produce it in English <laughs> any more than we have to produce ours in Japanese. Yeah. So I, I first off, I, I want to say that Monesh is a really smart guy and he is very comfortable on the world stage and very comfortable with his investing uh, analysis process, which, um, you know, I think we should get into a little bit because he talks about not the, the, the disadvantages of working with a group of people um, as a standalone investor and makes the point that Warren Buffett is managing 80 some companies that are reporting to him and a $160 billion portfolio and he does it all without any analysts helping him. 
And if Buffett can do yeah. that, the rest of us certainly can do our little bit. So let next time, let's talk about <laughs> do that. Our, do our little bit is the important part of that. Yeah, I'm doing our little bit. Let's talk about that. How 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 Pabri looks at uh, doing investing research. Yeah, and, how uh, he looks at research, how he structures it with, as you said, people or no people, and also his checklist ah, that yes. he's written about extensively and he talks about again in this interview. The one we'd all like to see. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right, let's talk about that next time. All right. Until then, time to go Thanks, play. everybody. See ya. Bye. Hey, guys, thanks for listening to Invested. Looking for a deep dive into the principles we discuss on this podcast? Well, then you may have to just check out our free online course. Yep, free. Called the Intro to Rule Number One. The course teaches you the basics of rule number one investing, and I want you to take advantage of this five lesson video course just by visiting investedpodcast.com slash course. All there for you for free. If you enjoyed this episode and want more information, including show notes and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.